Well, please uh, take up a copy of Scripture and turn with me one final time, at least for now, to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. We're in the last chapter today, and um, I'm going to be out of the pulpit in the mornings for the next couple of weeks as I get ready to head down to, uh, to Florida for uh, another class in the program that I'm currently in. And I just want to take this as an opportunity to say thank you once again to, to all of you for being a church that encourages and, and, and really supports the ongoing training of, of ministers. It's something I'm deeply thankful for, and uh, so I don't want to take that for granted. Uh, when I get back, uh, probably the first Sunday in August, Lord willing, we'll, we'll begin a new series in First Peter together. And I'm looking forward to uh, very much thinking about the identity of the people of God as we work our way through uh, that letter. But today it's Micah chapter 7. And one of the things that we've been noticing along the way is how Micah holds these, these two things together. He's been alternating back and forth between, an, an, on the one hand, an honest and realistic uh, take on the present circumstances and coming difficulty for Micah and, and his generation. You remember, Micah's generation has fallen into a terrible spiritual decline. And, and as a result, God was going to send the Assyrians as his instrument of disciplinary judgment, uh, first on the northern tribes of Israel and even to some extent on the southern tribe of Judah. Micah has been very open, very realistic about the coming days, the judgment that, that is at hand. There's hard times ahead, Micah has been saying. And at the same time, though, Micah has been full of hope, anticipating the, the coming of the shepherd king who would shepherd the flock of God's people in the strength of the Lord. And, and uh, he's full of hopeful expectation for a day when the nations of the earth, even the, the enemies of God's people, would come flocking to Mount Zion to listen to the teaching of the Lord. And so Micah holds these two realities together, and I think it's such a helpful thing for us to see and take note of, being real about present suffering and difficulty in the lives of God's people, while being full of hope about the future, knowing what God is yet to do. You see, if all we had is a view of present difficulty, well, then we could very easily fall into despair, couldn't we? But his view, Micah's view, is of the present, yes, informed with an understanding of the future. On the other hand, if all we had was you know, an assurance of future glory, we could perhaps become naive about present difficulties and not be equipped and readied for present distress. But you see, both together provide stability in the midst of difficult days. And I think this is a pattern that we need to learn from Micah for living the Christian life. And we see it again so clearly, I think, here in chapter 7. The first half of the chapter uh, focuses on present circumstances. And the second half begins to turn more to the future of what God is yet to do for his people. And I want us to notice that in the midst of that, in the midst of present difficulty, clinging to uh, 
to God with hope for the future, Micah engages in four activities, four activities as he deals with present suffering with a future hope. And here's, a, here's an outline, some things for you to hold on to before we read the text together. First, in, in verses 1 through 7, we see, we see lamentation, word of lament. And then in verses 8 through 13, Micah turns from lamentation to proclamation. He, he preaches, he, he proclaims the foundational, fundamental truths to which he clings. And then we'll see in verses 14 through 17, he'll turn to petition. He, he prays, he calls upon the Lord as the, the great shepherd of his people to, to bear his mighty arm and to deliver his people as he had done in the past. And then finally, in verses 18 through 20, we'll see adoration. He, he gives thanks to God as he reflects upon God's character and God's gracious work in his people. He, he is the God who forgives sin. Who is like the Lord our God who pardons iniquity. And we see he rejoices then with a grateful heart. So we see these four things. Lamentation, proclamation, petition, and then finally adoration. And I want to suggest that these are four activities for us in the midst of present troubles as we cling to God with a future hope. And so let's turn our attention at this point to the reading of God's word. We're going to read all of chapter 7 together. So let's hear God's word. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? 
My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building up of your walls. And that day the boundary shall be far extended. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Well, a a number of years ago, a fellow by the name of Carl Truman wrote, a blog, which I think I've recommended to, to you in the past. And if you haven't looked it up, please consider that a, a signed afternoon reading today. It's easy to find online. Uh, the title of the blog post is a question. And the title is, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And if you have a look at it, you'll see that he was arguing, he's arguing that the modern church has in many ways, lost the practice of lamentation. Um, And uh, he suggests that we have drunk so deeply from the wells of modern Western materialism that we don't know what to do with lamentation in Scripture. And frankly, some of us are even embarrassed by things like psalms of lament whenever they are found in our worship services. And so he goes on to say, and this is a quote from Carl Truman, a diet of unremittingly jolly courses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalistic street party, a theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. Truman's right, isn't he? I think he's really on to something here. If we lose our capacity for lamentation, and if the vocabulary of our worship, of our prayers, of our singing is only ever upbeat and happy-go-lucky, we're left without words then when things go terribly wrong. When disaster strikes, when uh, pain penetrates our hearts, and when tragedy strikes like a lightning bolt in our lives, as it sometimes does. The grammar of our worship 
will be unable to accommodate sadness and sorrow and heartache and loss. We, we won't know what to say to God. And so the church really does need to know the practice of lamentation. Again, one more quote from Truman. He says, if you do this, you'll have resources to cope with your own times of suffering, despair, heartbreak, and to keep worshiping and trusting even through the bleakest of days. You will also develop a greater understanding of fellow Christians who agonies of, say, bereavement, depression, or despair sometimes make it difficult, these are his words here, to prance around in ecstasy singing, Jesus wants me for his sunbeam. See, lamentation is the vocabulary of faith when sorrow breaks into our lives. And so we need to know the grammar and the practice of lament. And I want to suggest to you that Micah chapter 7 verses 1 through 7 is a lesson in lamentation. Micah models what to do when there are real reasons for sorrow and sadness in the Christian life. So let's ask this question, why is Micah lamenting? What's gone wrong? Well, we've seen it, haven't we, up to this point as we've worked our way through the book. He is lamenting over the comprehensive corruption of God's people. He's lamenting over the spiritual decline and rot that has set in among the covenant people of God in his day. A a, a corruption that is resulting in this coming judgment to purge and renew Israel in order that she might once again be a light to the nations. So he laments, as we saw last time, a people who are bored with God, a people who have grown weary with God and corrupted by decadence and domestic disorder. Remember that famous verse in Micah chapter 6, he has told you, O man, what is good. You can, you can take that and put it in the very reverse, and it's a description of Micah's generation. No one practices steadfast love. No one practices kindness. No one shows mercy. No one's walking humbly with the Lord, but instead they're walking in pride. And so God's people are no longer a, a community with a shared commitment to the Lord, but instead have become a people driven and motivated by sinful desires and self-interest. You'll notice that Micah is speaking here at the beginning of the chapter in the first person, but really he's speaking on behalf of, of the people of God. This is what we might call a national lament. Notice the imagery he uses as he describes the situation. Woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. We we know elsewhere in the Old Testament that Israel is is planted like, was planted like a vineyard for the Lord. Planted by the Lord himself, planted to, to bear fruit to the glory of God. But Micah is saying, the, the faithful and the fruitful are nowhere to be found. And Micah details this sad state of affairs in Israel and Judah. If you take a look at verses 2 through 6. Let's just scan over these verses. Uh, the godly have perished. 
replaced by bloodthirsty predators. That's verse 2. The leaders, the judges, the princes, the great men, they take bribes and they use their positions to indulge themselves and their own twisted desires. Now, if you have some time later this morning, read that verse alongside of Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 10, and you will see this is a description of the exact opposite of what men in such places of authority are called to be and to do. And so now the punishment of God is going to come down like a hammer, verse 4. Then you have this description of domestic disorder, neighbors, friends, spouses even. None of them can be trusted. Sons turn on their fathers, daughters on their mothers. Enemies, in other words, are found within one's own household. Now that's verse 6. So do you see why Micah is lamenting here? Every part of the community, every sphere of life, every relationship is in disorder and disarray because of sin. Instead of reflecting God and the effects of his redeeming grace, these people look and live just like the nations around them. And notice, what does it do to Micah, the prophet? It breaks his heart. It brings tears to his eyes. And so he cries out in lamentation. And we must not confuse, dear friends, lamentation with abject despair. Verse 7 will help us avoid that. Have a look at verse 7. Notice the difference. Lamentation knows where to turn with the tears. It knows what to do when sorrow breaks into our lives. Look at verse 7. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You might not know. Maybe, Maybe you're in the midst of a really trying situation and circumstance. And you might, you might not know what God's purpose for that thing is. You may not know how or if it will ever end. And it feels heavy. It feels sore. It's hard. Well, what does faith do in such times? One of the things God's word shows us here is that lamentation is faith running to God with the heartache, pouring out the grief before him instead of running away from him because of that trial. And this is what Micah is doing. His his heart is breaking for the people of God over the condition of the people. He's, He's lamenting, but he takes his grief to God and trusting, he waits for the God of his salvation. And so we see, first of all, here, lamentation. And then, secondly, proclamation. This is the second thing Micah does. As he lives with present troubles, holding on to a future hope. Have a look at verses 8 through 13. Micah turns to preaching. Now, it looks as though in verse 8 that he is preaching to his enemies. He says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. But if you keep reading, you look down to verse 10, it becomes clear that He's now speaking about his enemies to someone else. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her and, and so on. So how do, we, how do we make sense of what's going on here? I, I think the right way to understand this is in verse 8. 
Micah is speaking rhetorically to his enemies, but the real object of his proclamation is his own heart and and fellow believers, the believing remnant within Israel. It's a word for those, in other words, who are looking to the Lord and waiting for the God of their salvation. And so if you read through verses 8 through 13, it reads almost like like a creed that Micah is reciting to himself for the strengthening of faith. He is he's declaring these great central foundational truths about the reliability and the grace of God. And so look at verse 8. Here, my friends, is a promise that you can preach to your own heart in the darkest of days. It says, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I mean, how much would we be helped if we just remembered and recited those words to ourselves in the midst of dark days? When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. He's remembering that there is no darkness, no gloom that is so impenetrable that the light of God's truth and the light of his grace cannot see us through it. And then if you look at verse 9, Micah gives some real help when we endure uh, providential sorrows and sufferings. And through those trials and sufferings, the Lord is disciplining us by them. And one of the things he does is to uncover hidden sin in our own lives. I mean, don't we find this to often be the case when a little bit of pressure is put on us? Trials have a way of exposing things in our hearts that perhaps we otherwise would have missed. See, God in his, his providence has a way of exposing the, the deep and hidden things of our hearts. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is what, what is our default response when this sort of thing happens in our lives? Have a look at verse 9 and look at what Micah says. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. That's Micah's posture. God's disciplining me, and I will bear up under the discipline of God in meekness. And then notice what he goes on to say, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. It's an amazing response, isn't it? If you remember back, uh, back in chapter 6, Micah was saying, the Lord has an indictment against his people. And Micah is essentially saying here, I'm guilty as charged. But he's also saying, I have an advocate to plead my cause and the Lord will be, uh, the Lord will plead my cause and he will be my vindication. That's what Micah's confessing. And of course we know, brothers and sisters, that we, we have an advocate with the Father. Remember what, the way John puts it in, in 1 John. That if anyone confesses his sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He goes on, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, hear the language, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. 
So, so where do you look when God in his providence puts his finger on sin in your life and seeks to bring you to your senses? This might not be all of us, but maybe it's some of us. Maybe, maybe you've been wondering. Maybe you've been going your own way, indulging sinful desires, functionally living like an unbeliever, forgetting your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And God is working to get your attention with his disciplinary rebukes. And now you see yourself in a mirror clearly. What do you do? Let Micah be a guide to you. He's saying run to Jesus Christ because he is an advocate for sinners. If you trust him, he pleads your cause and he is your vindication. And then notice when we reach this point of Micah chapter 7, how the whole tenor of Micah's language changes uh, at this point. You know, up till now, he's, he's been lamenting and grieving over his own sin. But as he thinks about the one who will plead his cause, he says in verse 10, his enemy, the, the Assyrians personified here as a woman taunting uh, the people of God, asking, where is the Lord your God? Micah now seems to shine with assurance of confident expectation. Not arrogant expectation, but confident. The enemy will be overcome and the Lord will triumph and he will vindicate his people. Now you've got to ask the question, where did God's people get that kind of assurance? Certainly not in themselves, right? Not in one another, You get it in Jesus Christ, your advocate with the Father. You get it resting in the one who pleads your cause. Friends, that's what Jesus does for us as we trust in him. He can chase away the shadows of doubt and fear that looms large over our hearts. And he can overcome all of his and our enemies. And so Micah proclaims, Uh, This word to encourage faith. And then notice in verses 11 through 13, he starts to speak about the nations again. He talks about the day. Now, we've we've already heard him talk about the day back in in chapter 4. He's thinking here again about the day of the Messiah, the day of Christ, the age in which we now live, the age of the church, the gospel age. Now that day, he said in chapter 4, will be a a day when the nations, remember the imagery he used, will come streaming to Mount Zion to, to listen to the teaching of the Lord and to begin to walk in his ways. And Micah is using that same imagery here, the same picture in verses 11 through 13. He's saying it's a, it'll be a day for, for building your walls. And that day, the, the boundary will be far extended. The Even the ancient enemies of God's people, people like the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they will come not to lay siege against the city, but to bow the knee to the shepherd king and to join in the assembly of God's people to sing praises to him. See, Micah is reminding us here that the grace of God, which is for you and me, isn't just for you and me. It is for the nations, the peoples of the earth. But in verse 13, please notice as well that there's, there's also a reminder of, of judgment. We've seen this balance in Micah as well, haven't we? As he proclaims 
salvation, he also proclaims judgment. Micah preaches both. So he's dealing with the present suffering and proclaims where where he may find one who will plead his cause. And then he reminds himself of the good news that will reach the ends of the earth. And then he reminds himself in verse 13 that there's also judgment. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. No one merits salvation. But the judgment to come will be according to works. And it's saying that those who do not bend the knee to God's king, the shepherd king, Jesus Christ, and trust in him now in repentance and faith, they will nevertheless one day bow the knee to him when he comes to judge the nations in equity. And so we see Micah lamenting, pouring out grief with hope to the Lord. We see Micah in the face of trouble and distress, proclaiming the truth as he confesses his own sin. He looks to uh, the Lord himself as his advocate who will please his, plead his case and be his vindication. He reminds us that the good news of the shepherd king is for the nations. And by that same shepherd king, God will judge the nations. And so we see lamentation, proclamation, and then having begun to think about the future, the remainder of the chapter is really focused there. And as Micah looks to the future, he shows us two more practices. Let's consider these more briefly. The first one is in verses 14 through 17, and it's the practice of petition. Micah prays. Look at verse 14, what he says. Shepherd your people with your staff. And he's calling on the Lord, right? And, and he's picking up the imagery of uh, what we've seen before back in earlier chapters of the promised Messiah himself who will come as a shepherd and, and shepherd the flock of God in the strength of the Lord. And so see what Micah's doing. He is praying God's truth back to him. And he's saying, shepherd your people with your staff, the the flock of your inheritance. He is in in several ways modeling, I think, for us how to pray. And one of the things he is doing is he's pressing God's own character on the Lord. He's saying, you are the shepherd. Will you leave your flock to disaster? He presses upon God his immutability that God doesn't change. Do it as you did in the days of old. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, aren't you? You've not defected from your previous promises and covenant commitments. So do it again, Lord. Do it again in our day. Do it among us. He presses God to be God toward his people, to keep his word, and to be faithful to his own character. And he does it with boldness because, remember the words back in chapter 7, My God will hear me. That's a a mark. That that prayer, those words, my God will hear me, is really indicative of, of those who are praying in faith, believing that God will be true to himself, true to his promises, true to his word. And that gives the children of God cause and reason to pray, not with arrogance, but with humble boldness. 
And then look at verse 15. And notice the speaker changes, right? In verse 14, Micah's praying. And now in verse 15, God is answering. And he says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I, the Lord, will show them marvelous things and, and so on. In other words, the Lord is saying he is going to bring about a new exodus, a, a deliverance for his people. And while he delivers his people, he will also bring judgment upon the nations who do not honor him. And as Micah hears the response of God, then the rest of the chapter turns to praise, to, to adoration. And that's the last thing we've seen, we see here. We see lamentation, we see proclamation, petition, and then finally adoration. Verse 18, who is a God like you? Now, you remember what Micah's name means? We talked about this at the start. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. And so as he frames his, his concluding anthem of praise, celebrating the greatness and the goodness of God, he's doing it with a play on words, a play on his own name. Who is like the Lord our God? He's saying you are utterly unique. There's no one in heaven or on earth to compare you to. And notice in particular what it is that compels Micah to celebrate and to declare the utter uniqueness of God. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So what is it that make Micah what is it that makes Micah sing? What is it that should make us sing today? It is the extraordinary news that in the face of the hateful wickedness and sin of God's own covenant people, God delights to save sinners. He delights in mercy. He blots out iniquity. Like a, like a conquered enemy, he tramples our transgressions underneath his feet. And like a rock, our sins sink to the bottom of the ocean out of sight before him. That's what makes Micah sing. And I wonder, does that make us sing today? Believers in Jesus to know that as you trust in Christ, you are redeemed, restored, forgiven, reconciled. Does it make your heart sing that you have an advocate with the Father because of whose obedience and blood today, right now, you can stand before God accepted and covered in the robes of righteousness that belong to Jesus Christ himself. As Micah laments present sorrows, you see, he also lifts up his voice and sings with rejoicing. He laments and praises God. Who is like you? There is no one like you, a Savior who blots out iniquity. 
And of course, dear brothers and sisters, God trampled our sins underneath his feet. At the cross of Calvary in Jesus Christ, he cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea as his own righteous, sinless son was put into the depths of divine judgment for his people. Praise God for pardoning, redeeming grace. That's what Micah is leading us to do here at the end of his book. So let's, let's just sum this up. What are, what are we then to do when we, as God's people, find ourselves facing present difficulties, present distress, present trouble, as we cling to God with a future hope? What sort of activities should we be engaged in? We see at least four things here. We can pour out our hearts to the Lord and lamentation to the God who hears us, We can proclaim the truth of God's grace and love to one another to encourage and bolster faith. You have an advocate with the Father. You are accepted in love. You have a perfect intercessor at the right hand of God. And then we can pray. We can petition the Lord. We can pray and pray and pray and pray until we pray. And then we can adore our God. We can worship him Together, we can lift up our voice and sing of gospel hope in the face of darkness. Some of you, let me just close with with this as as an illustration of God's people doing this today. Some of you might remember some of the the recent uh, protests in the streets of Hong Kong, where something like two to three million people were gathered in the streets protesting political tyranny. Now, what was not covered, at least I didn't see it very much at all in the news, is the fact that thousands upon thousands of these protesters were standing in the streets and together singing an anthem. And the words were, Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Sing, Christ is risen from the dead. That's what they were singing, to, to fuel their hope In dark days under political tyranny, they sang out. That's how how God's people face the darkness in this world. We cry out to God and lament. We proclaim the truth of God. We petition the Lord in prayer. And we, we sing out words of gospel hope in the darkness, knowing with hope that there is more yet to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us in the book of Micah. And we pray that you would take all of the the warnings and the comforts that are found in this portion of your word and hide them in our hearts. And we pray that the Lord Jesus, by his word and spirit, would train us and teach us in these truths that we might walk in your ways And in this life, in the midst of trouble and suffering in this life, pray that we would be a people of hope as we cling to you and look forward to the day of ultimate salvation and the renewal of all things when Jesus comes again to save his people and to judge the world. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.